Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Steve Alexander, the CTO at Sienna, and we discuss how to build products that are better, faster, and stronger, what the T in CTO means, and we dive deep into how the internet works and our current limitations. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hey. Hey, hello, Joel. Steve, how are you doing today? Doing good. Just getting read in on all the cool stuff you do with audio and sounds like you got quite the, uh, quite the team here. It's a good thing. Yeah, we do. We have a great team, awesome production crew. And I like your background there on Zoom. That's a really high quality background. That is a, so that's right off the point here. I live in Annapolis, Maryland, and that's a picture my wife, Edith, took after one of the storms that we had here a couple of years back. And I just thought it was so cool. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, it looks, makes a nice background. Because the, the regular room I'm in, I'm, I'm in a stand-up desk setup because I just, you know, got tired of sitting, right? And it's a very boring background if I, <laughs> if I turn off the, the virtual stuff. So I've got a whole variety of them. When did you start with the standing Oh, you know what? I've actually been using a standing desk probably about four years now. <laughs> you know, it actually started out. So I have, by virtue of a whole bunch of reasons, um, three different compressed discs in my back. And I noticed when I was standing around at trade shows, I was getting just fatigued and talked to the doc. And he said, hey, well, you know, try to try see sets of exercises, which I did. He also said, you know, you're sitting a bunch. Why don't you get yourself a stand-up desk? And over a period, it took a little while, but it's over about a year's time. I found, I mean, I can stand for hours now without any back pain. So it's actually helped quite a bit with that. You got to, you know, pay attention to some other stuff, your feet and get a pad under it and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm using um, some Dansko shoes, which are good for, you know, arch support, that sort of stuff. But uh, it's worked out real well for me. Do you spend a lot of time improving your health and, and growing and working on yourself? Um, to some extent, I think everybody has to, right? Um, you know, but just by virtue of the, the pace at which everything goes, you got to pay attention to that sort of stuff. You know, so you got to watch what you eat. You know, I've had my moments when I wasn't, right? So my weight's gone up, weight's come off. You know, with the whole COVID thing now, it's nice because, you know, I can actually be home and work out. I got a little workout area downstairs. That's been a benefit. Uh, you know, I used to do a whole bunch of travel and the travel's cut back, you know, quite dramatically now. So I can spend some of that travel time doing other things. Um, although I will tell you, you know, the meetings expand to kind of fill the time available. So, you know, the, the I think everybody's life now is, you know, Zoom, WebEx, go to meeting, FaceTime, Teams. There's a whole variety of tools out there that people are using now. I'm a fan of Zoom. I thought they were like a really great company. I had on Harry, and I was just really impressed with him as like a CIO. Yeah, I think. Well, I think Zoom of all the tools is probably the most user friendly, and I think that's one of the reasons you know it took off like it did in terms of the, the number of people using it. Use some of the other ones, and it feels fairly antiquated, right? And you know, they they put in place things like the virtual background and all the things that you, you know, would kind of think of as being appropriate and kind of a modern interface. I think they did a great job with the, with the tool set. Nice. And you're in telecommunications background, right? Yeah. 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 I've liked communications oh, pretty much for forever. Um, and the, the company I work with Sienna, right? So that's the company I work for. We 
are the guys that basically light up the internet, right? We're the ones that light the fibers that interconnect the continents, right? The submarine cables, as well as the, the big cities, the big metropolitan areas. So we've been driving connectivity and capacity out into the infrastructure for, wow, that's about 20, 25 years. Wow. I remember I saw a few years ago this documentary uh, and it had the ship and they were going you know, in the sea somewhere and they had this like crane thing and it would pick up this yeah, giant cable. cable out the back. Yeah. 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 That's it. Submarine cable. Yeah. The one I saw, that's what it's called a submarine because it's big and it's round and, and it's, so it's like this fiber of light. And then I saw them doing like a repair on it. And I was just watching these, like, you know, it was, it was like a documentary or a show and I was blown away by this. And at that moment I realized that, you know, we actually have this web of cables strung around the world and that's, Oh, yeah. part of the internet well it's, it, well it's fascinating i mean a lot of people still think you know the intercontinental communications is satellites and it's not like 99.9 percent .9 of it is all under these submarine cables and the cables themselves aren't that big think of like a big thick garden hose where the repeaters are which are the optical amplifiers right that you know allow the signal to propagate that long of a distance they are you know beefier they're bigger but the actual cable itself isn't all that big and you're right, they're what interconnect, you know, the, all the major continents and carry the vast, vast majority of all the, you know, internet communications and such. And it's one of these things that it just works so well that unless there's been a real problem, you know, an earthquake that cut a bunch of cables or every once in a while you'll get a ship in, a, in an area where it'll drag its anchor and cut cables, you know, unless you get a lot of physical damage to the infrastructure, people pretty much don't even know it's there. Just sits in the background and works. It's just like air, right? It's just, we got it, we breathe it, everything's good. Same thing with the network. And honestly, it should be that way, right? We strive, you know, the whole industry works hard. Um, you know, CN in particular has been, you know, very good at providing what we would call mission critical or high availability designs on all this stuff. So, you know, if there is a failure, it'll automatically find another path through the network and such. So it's, you know, it's designed to, uh, to work really, really well and just sit in the background and you don't even know about it so i'm a super curious person so i want to dive a little bit deeper on this because i don't See, diving have... in submarine yeah. is a good thing right you got that all right that's why i make the big box stuff <laughs> there you go dude that's good so so i want to understand like the landscape of the internet so let's say we got sienna and they have one of those cables it's like a thicker than a garden hose right yeah and do they have multiple ones of those stretching on the yeah. ocean floor? And are there different? So actually, so, so actually inside the cable, you'd have, you know, four, eight, now 16. People are even looking at 32, you know, pairs of fibers that mm -hmm. will run in parallel inside of this one cable. Got it. And then each one of them carries, you know, information across. And then will you have like multiple of the big ones or you just have like one big one? Over, well, so it goes with demand, right? So early on between, you know, any two land masses, one cable, then as population, you know, gets more and more on board with the internet. So transatlantic grew the first, transpacific grew next. But, you know, if you go back and you look at all the different cables that have been deployed over time, it follows the deployment in some sense of the internet. And, you know, the internet kind of scales with eyeballs, right? So you can imagine as um, China, India, Southeast Asia, as all those countries became more and more internet centric, the connectivity patterns changed and more and more cables were, were put down. So, you know, you can get maps, you can go online and look at some of the maps of the, the submarine cables. And you'll, like you said earlier, you'll see this whole web of interconnections. And 
you'll then see, okay, now I see how the world really does you know, communicate. Okay, so then help me understand, like, let's take one of the, just a single garden hose size cable, and it's got several inside of it. And then that is going, it's connecting to where, like, what are the buildings that they connect into? Like, like you have two land masses, right? Yep. Maybe like so years, years ago, what mm-hmm. they would have done is they'd actually have buildings that were very close to the beaches, right? So you'd have a cable landing site, let's say, in uh, New Jersey, New York. You'd have a similar one over in the UK or France, right? And you'd have a building there, and that would have all the electronics and the other equipment that would, you know, basically energize the cable and set up all the connections, the photonic flows, the optical circuits and such. What um, actually one of the things CN has been able to do is by introducing a new technology we call coherent communications, coherent detection, we can actually extend that into the local data centers. And so what you really are doing now is you're connecting massive data centers together. So if you've got a big data center outside of New York or outside of Washington, D.C. on the East Coast, um, outside of Miami, maybe there'll be a number of them up and down the coast. You can directly connect those to other data centers located, let's say, in Europe. South America, Africa, you know, whatever you need in terms of your, your topology. And the same would be true going, you know, from the West Coast, let's say San Francisco, LA, over to Hawaii or directly over to Japan, over to, you know, down to Australia, New Zealand, all those are interconnected on these kinds of cables. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. The cable landing site, that's an important thing. Now, I guess I want to form a better question. Let's, uh, so the, I need some background information before I form the question I want to form. I'm getting excited here. <laughs> this is a lot Good. of fun. Steve. This is cool stuff. No, I, like I say, I, it's uh, you know it's a wonderful technology. Again, it's it's something that a lot of people kind of know is there, but don't really know about it because it does work so well. It just sits in the background and creates all this capacity. Okay, so here we go. We're going to educate me, and you can boil it down to like I'm a three year old if you want. So the first question I have is what is actually like how do you refer to the packet of data is that like a photon going through light is it an electron like how do you refer to like let's say we're on a call right now and let's pretend we're on two different land masses let's pretend you're in the uk and i'm in the us and data is you know entering in through the camera hitting the camera lens getting turned into data going out through you know my router my isp and then what happens after it, like I'm very familiar with the, you know, the, the modem that's in the office, but then what happens when it hits that modem and then goes off into the internet? How does it get to you? Okay. So, so, so why don't we start with, you know, you'll be just for today, because I really don't know where you are. Uh, I'm on the East Coast and you're in Europe, just to make it up. Right? Okay, I'll be in Europe. So, and we got this, we got a video link and an audio link going, right? So you're basically creating, you're, you're taking information off your screen, you're taking your voice, you're digitizing it. Right, you're forming packets. Those packets are then ultimately given an IP address. Right, so it's typically starting as Ethernet, they'd be encapsulated with IP, and off they would flow into the grand internet. Right, with an with an address that says, "You want to talk to me." Right. Now, in reality, with Zoom, what you're doing is you're talking to Zoom. Zoom is making the connection in the background, and then Zoom is finding me. So we're not directly connected in that sense, but you know, it basically works the same way. So you're generating packets with addresses that get routed to me, right? So they start as an electrical signal. Someplace within the network, they will be turned into an optical signal. So you'll do an optical electrical conversion, right? You'll take the electrons coming in, you'll use it to modulate light. 
that modulation on the light is that information that you want to convey. That would then go down into this, in the case of this long transatlantic cable, gets dropped in, let's say, in just outside of New Jersey, transits across the Atlantic, comes out, let's say, on the UK, and goes back into an electrical signal, and it finds its way to you, and vice versa. Right, so same thing happens for me. My image, my voice, digitized, put into packets, given an IP address that finds its way to you. Brilliant. Yes, you just made me smarter. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> That's you know, I'm I'm a big nerd. I was curious to how like electricity turned into pixels, and so I spent like a year hunting down every oh, yeah. step. Yeah, yeah. I learned about transistors, and you know, you know, how does it come from the power station and step down through the transformers, and then go into the computer and go through the and then become data. And so I, I hunted all of that down, but I never did that variation with uh, how data flows across the you know world. I just knew it was like a yeah. beam of light. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, that's most people's experiences, you know, either the wireless device, in which case you've got a radio frequency that's been modulated and that's how you're getting connected to a tower or a Wi-Fi access point, or it's, you know, a, a physical ethernet cable. And again, it's electrons at that point, right? That RJ45, which is the same everywhere in the world, that's what most people's experience is. But the reality is generally, as soon as it gets inside of the network to the local central office, in some cases, if you're in an office building, maybe down in the basement or even a local wiring closet, you're gonna convert it into light. You know, you're gonna do this optical, electrical, electrical, optical conversion right there because the losses on fiber are very, very low, right? So you don't spend a lot of energy once you get the things into an optical format and they're also very high capacity. So. You know, when you think about, um, you know, data rates, for example, right? So most people probably are, con are okay with saying a gigabit, right? That's probably about the fastest you typically experience most people for, you know, a, a Cat 5, 6Y or in your house, that sort of thing. You might say, I got gigabit Ethernet. By the time you get into the optical domain, and this is actually one of the changes that Jen has driven over the last 25 years is we first introduced the technology called um, wavelength division multiplexing, where you put multiple colors of light on the same fiber, and then, then you run all those parallel colors through one amplifier. Right? So that's dense wavelength division multiplexing. And we also, I know we did that, by the way, about 1995. So that's, you know, very old technology, very well established now. Around 2010, we also introduced this coherent detection model where you actually use a laser at the receiver to measure the incoming laser, right? And lasers being very precise, you get a lot of information out of it that way. And so when you look at the rates on the optical lines, remember you got the gigabit electrical in your hand is pretty typical. By the time you get to optical rates, you know, you're talking, you know, 100 gigabits, 200 gigabits, 400 gigabits. The stuff that we're um, now shipping is 800 gigabits, right? And that's per wavelength. Then you multiply by how many wavelengths it can generate. And so, you know, a single optical fiber today, in general, you can think about 20 to 30 terabits on that individual fiber, right? I mean, that's just a tremendous amount of capacity. And it's, it's been that deployment of all this capacity and connectivity over the last, you know, decade or so that's really put the kind of the connectivity platform in place. That's why we can do the things we're doing right now. You know, if, 
you can imagine what the world would be like if we were trying to do this kind of connectivity, this kind of communications on a dial-up service. <laughs> you go back to the beginnings of the internet, it'd be game over. Right? You have to have this kind of capacity and connectivity built right into the infrastructure to make all this work the way we want. So, you know, with the, I think the whole industry is, you know, fortunate, you know, the technologies that we pioneered got widely adopted, widely deployed. And so we've been able to push huge amounts of capacity out there. And that's what, you know, the, the digital economies are really, you know, thriving with right now. Is our infrastructure keeping up with demand? In a lot of places, yes, although there's still, I, I think you still have issues. Digital divide is a real a real issue. I haven't heard this word before. You called it what? The digital the, divide? The digital divide. Yeah. What I is mean, that? This is, it's the have and the have nots for good internet access, right? If, if, you, if you postulate that, you know, a lot of people are going to be doing um, work from home, learn from home, you know, telehealth, you better have good connectivity for that. So if you're in a rural area, if you're in an underserved area, if you don't have good connectivity, all of a sudden now, well, okay, how do I telework? How do I telelearn? How do I telehealth, right? I don't have that connectivity anymore. So, you know, you, one, one way to think about it is if you say, you know, historically, you know, how did commerce occur? Well, you go way, way back, you know, it was, you needed um, a waterway. Okay, well, okay, then we could build railroads. Well, then we built roads. And the, the digital um, economies rely on the internet. Well, those are the, ro the roads now, right? And if you don't have a good roadway, you know, right to your house or where you're working or getting educated or where you, you need healthcare, how do you get it, right? So that, that uh, difference between who has it and who's not is kind of considered or called the, the digital divide. Yeah, you know what? Now that, now that you're describing it, I hadn't heard that term before, so I'm glad I, I learned that. Uh, but I did read a while back that I think Starlink, Elon, one of Elon Musk's projects, they actually got some government funding through a project that was to help enable access to rural areas. Oh, yeah. Well, there's lots of folks, um, you know, many of the, the big web scale folks, the hypergiants, the Facebooks and the Googles have all had initiatives around how do we improve, you know, broadband access? Um, you know, it, it's, it's just a, it's a fact of, you know, the cities are generally better served. There are some good rural areas, but there isn't this, you know, universal access to really good broadband available to people. And you get outside of, you know, the, the major developed countries and it gets dramatically worse, right? You know, there's still people who, you know, really don't have any access to the internet, right? How does how does demand like how do you see I'm trying to build a picture in my head for CN and like because you you build this infrastructure and so you you monitor I guess capacity how much of total available capacity versus used and then you I guess you just build you add more capacity and make improvements there as demand rises and it seems to all be in line we're like do we have significantly more capacity today than we need right now or are we like always riding on the edge well i wouldn't say we're always riding on the edge we we have you know in a lot of places it's kind of adequate right because like i say the kind of these digital economies are doing okay right but in general i think you know humankind learns how to 
exhaust you know capacity connectivity capacity just as, as much as we learn how to exhaust storage space right you know we, we take pictures we store them away you know when was the last time you went on your hard drive and really called out all the old stuff you probably don't what you do is you buy a bigger hard drive and make a folder called old stuff and you take all that stuff and you go in here and then you got more space right you know so, so I think we just have learned how to consume, you know, connectivity, capacity, computational assets, storage, all that, you know, very, very well. And I think, you know, some of the learnings that are going to come out of, of COVID, you know, we talked about the, you know, the, the work from home, the e-learning, the e-healthcare, all those things. There's gaps in all those. We, we know every one of those kind of market applications could be better in some cases, much better than what we're experiencing right now. And I think a lot of that is going to drive additional demands for capacity and connectivity. I mean, a good example is collaboration environments, right? They're not, what you really would like is something that's fully immersive. You know, it's if, if you remember the old holodeck kind of model, if you were a Star Trek fan or something, where you can have a virtual world that you walk into and you can interact with, that's a much different um, experience than what we're doing. I mean, we're basically, you know, looking at a little flat panel, you know, here's a face and we can talk back and forth, but it's really not good for collaboration. You don't get the same feeling as if you were in a conference room with a whiteboard, right? You know, a lot of times, you know, especially early in a company's life, a lot of the innovation and creativity is, you know, you almost lock yourselves in the, in the, the conference room and bring in pizza and, you know, we're going to go solve this problem, folks, right? Recreating that again, but in a distributed environment, we don't really have the tools for that yet. Uh, yeah, I'd say same thing on the, the, you know, the distance learning, right? You know, what I've seen a lot of parents have to do is become the, the teacher, right? You don't have the teacher that walks through the, camp, you know, classroom and says, okay, Steve, pay attention, right? You know, the parent has to do that. So are there other things that we could be doing in terms of the school, the distributed school environment that would be better than what we currently have, which is, again, it's kind of a replica of what you and I are doing right now. Um, telehealth, right? The, the ability to remotely sense, um, you know, it's kind of, you go for the dermatologist, like take a picture of what you're worried about and send it to me, right? You know, are there things that we could do in terms of the, you know, the resolution, you know, multispectral, are there other things that we should be thinking about or looking about in terms of the ability to have remote sensing that would be of interest to the physician, right? Those are all areas that I think are going to be ripe for, for innovation. And I think in a lot of cases are going to drive additional demands on connectivity and capacity. Have you seen any like futuristic 3D holodeck type conferencing stuff? I've seen lots of um, proposals, right? I haven't seen one where I said, wow, this is, this is the answer. Well, usually what I see are bigger versions of what we, have, what, what we have now in higher resolution, which is all important, absolutely. But I haven't yet seen the, the, the real experience. It might be out there. And I'm, you know, I've, I might not just know about it, but I just haven't seen it yet. I'm excited for the future. Someone's going to crack it. I saw you had some articles that you've written, and I, I read through them. And one of the references was to like volumetric video, which I thought was really cool. Uh, that that was just unbelievable. It was basically like the one scene from the Matrix, but all the video is is like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but th that is the kind of experience and interaction that you really want to have. Is you know, it can't just be the flat panel. It can't be what we're doing right now. It's got to be better than that. If you really want to kind of transcend distance the, the way we want, and there's there's a lot of visual, you know, kind of cues that people get from being in the room together 
that get lost in this, you know, typical classical video conferencing environment. So bringing those, some of those back, you know, so I have seen some, what I think are interesting ideas of kind of the, the virtual meeting room where, you know, you walk up and it's kind of a, a reflection of a room in a different location, a different, you know, different building. That looks like an interesting way to go. You still got to get people to come and sit down and chat with you and all that, of course. But so there are lots of good ideas out there. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because it's like either the headsets would have to get smaller and be more of like glasses that you wear that are very light and not a big deal. Or it would have to be designed in a way that didn't need you to wear anything on your eyes. And then we would have, you know, our, our offices would still be our offices. They would just there would be some different technology in there and the interaction might be be very different. Yeah, and that, that's much more along the lines of the old holodeck ideas, right? Where you yeah. go into something and it creates that environment for you. It's not something you, you put on and you wear. That's what, but, you're, but you're right. I, I, if it's this big, clunky, got a you know huge 10-pound helmet you got to put on, you're probably not going to be that effective, right? <laughs> and until uh, Musk gets his Neuralink going, then we can just build an app on that. There you go. So how did you get into all of this? Oh, geez, I was probably, you know, your typical oh, nerd, I guess, from, from as early as I can remember. I was always interested in, you know, science, physics, electricity, electronics. My dad had been in the Signal Corps in World War II. He had brought home a surplus, what's called a BC-348Q, which is a, a receiver that was in one of the, I think it was in a B-17. It was uh, tubes, you know, vacuum tubes, real old vacuum tubes. So those were actually the first electronic devices I ever used were vacuum tubes. And my first thing I ever built was a way to power that particular radio because it was designed to be used in a, an aircraft, which is a different powering arrangement than, you know, plugging it into the wall. So, you know, figured out how to do that. Um, that kind of launched me into a, a specific direction of, you know, electronics and communications got hooked into um, the local like ham radio, shortwave listening guys, um, helped them with, I always like to build stuff. So I was kind of just into communications. The fact that, you know, you could, with the right knowledge, take, you know, these little devices and all of a sudden make your voice show up, you know, across the room with no visible means of interconnection, I always thought was just really, really cool. And then, I I think I was probably 12 or 13 and, um, one of the local school teachers had a what's called a helium neon laser, which was not a little thing. It's a pretty good size one. But it would, well, first of all, if you put a beam of light that you can't see, but the dot goes on the wall, which is, again, kind of intriguing. But then you could modulate it and, again, put your voice on it across the way. And I thought, oh, that's really, really, really interesting. So I got very interested in the combination of um, electronics, microwave, uh, radio technology, and optical technology. And that's effectively what I, you know, spent my time in school on. From there, I went up to MIT Lincoln Laboratory. They had a group that was just starting out in almost the same field, but focused on optical communications initially between satellites, although later on it was between satellites, satellite to ground, and also ground networks. And that, I spent 12 years there, and that was more, almost a pure research environment. but about 1994, realized that some of the technology that we had been using in the, the research labs and building up some prototypes, there was a DARPA-funded pro- project called the All Optical Network that we had built, and I was in charge of building up a test bed. That, I thought, would be, 
ideal at that point for commercialization. And by happy circumstance, right around when I was thinking, hey, this would be kind of cool to go commercialize, there was a company starting up in the Maryland area that was going to try to build WDM equipment for initially cable operators, but that was quickly changed over to be for what were then the inter exchange carriers. And our first customer ended up being Sprint, right? And way back then, Sprint had just done the pin drop, which was a, a very popular commercial. Right? Oh, yeah. First digital, you know, all fiber optic network, border to border, coast to coast. You could hear, you know, so quite you could hear pin drop. And that produced a lot of interest in their network. They built Sprint Link, which was one of the first internet service providers. And so they had lots of capacity coming on board. So they were looking for capacity solutions. Sienna showed up with, hey, we got this thing called dense wavelength division multiplexing where we can multiply the capacity of that fiber by 16 times. Aren't, isn't that cool? And they were like, not only is it cool, it's like, you know, we need it now. And that's literally what launched the company. That's amazing. And so you have, you have over 25 patents. That's pretty exciting. Probably right now. Yeah, I, have, I, I don't track them, but yes, there's probably some number like that. Yeah. I think that's what like was in your uh, notes or your bio. By the way, your PR team, your PR team is really good. I get, you know, notes sent over all the time and they were like short, succinct questions. And I said, I told our production manager, I said, hey, screenshot this and send it to people in the future as like a good example of good cool. PR uh, notes. Yeah. yeah, no, they are good. I agree with that. So what is... I'm curious now, like, what is the patent that you find most interesting or that you're most proud of? Probably, well, there's probably a couple. The one, there's a couple ones that went into the original Sienna product. One was on, I think it was called Uniform Game Optical Amplifiers. So the, the way that this whole technology kind of emerged is around, let's see, around 89, out of the university came erbium doped fiber amplifiers, EDFA. So basically it's doped glass. If you illuminate it at a certain wavelength, you'll provide gain at another wavelength. And that's how we build these amplifiers. What hadn't been done at that point was applying them into a WDM environment where you had multiple channels. And so I figured out a way to basically offset the slopes of different types of amplifier designs and get a uniform amplifier out of it in a very straightforward way. So it was something that a, you know, a small startup could do we provided what, what at the time was extremely good quality uh, amplification, very low noise, broadband for the time. And that probably enabled as much as anything else we did, the kind of systems that we built. So you take that one, you combine it with a, a couple of others that were more around the mapping of information on and off of the optical signals that we were creating. Some of the higher level system patents, I think those are the ones that, you know, looking back probably, I don't know, probably had the biggest influence. Does does Sienna have a podcast, or do you have a podcast? Have you ever we do. done that? I I don't I do them with other folks, and Sienna does you know a fair number of them, often in collaboration with customers or other folks in the industry and such. So, uh, like I say, our like you identified it. Our PR folks will get you hooked up with what any anything you need to know about the the technology. Um, we do have a whole series of what are called kind of chalk talks, where we'll go through the different pieces of it and give it you know in a way that you know, people can understand it, right? Because this this whole business is just a huge number of acronyms, and you really need to translate those acronyms into something people can understand. I think you should have one. I think you should make one. Cool. I'll let them know. Yeah, that's that's my suggestion. I've I've talked with, and by the way, if you do it, 
right? We'll help you launch it too. You can come on the show. Oh, cool. okay. We did that with uh, Three Pillar. They're an amazing company engineering firm. They're actually out up your way on the East Coast. But uh, Jessica over there at Three Pillars, we actually ran into her at a wedding. Someone, this girl walked up to me. Yeah, I had interviewed her. And then like six months later, I'm at like my wife had a good friend from elementary school. And so we're at her wedding, right? Old, old friend. And uh, this girl walks up to me. She goes, hey, are you Joel? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, oh, I'm Jessica. You interviewed me like six months ago. I was like, no (laughs) way. Yeah. And then they had just started. uh, Yeah. They had started a company podcast for three pillar. And I was like, come on. And so we did a special episode where like we uh, introduced it. And then at the end of that episode, I think it was like, uh, like 160 something, 164. But uh, we did an episode with them and helped them like launch their new podcast. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So if you do it, let me know and you okay. can come on we'll here and we can help you because I think it'd be cool. I, I'd also recommend you for um, Kevin Scott, who's the CTO of uh, Microsoft, like the whole organization. And mm-hmm. he has a cool uh, podcast where he talks to people that like have made, you know, meaningful contributions to technology, usually like older technology. Um, and yeah, okay. with all your patents. More mature. <laughs> yeah, more mature. But no, that's a, um, I was like, it's a, it's a really good podcast. If you uh, look up, look up Kevin Scott in the uh, podcast store, but, okay. well, then. but mostly you just do these, you just like go and do other people's podcasts, hang out. Well, so, so we'll chat like we did one, um, you know, you kind of e-gaming, right? Because one of the biggest kind of transitions that's going on, right? So we kind of talked about faster, right? So if Dolph, he came to me and said, hey, dude, what, what's going to happen in the network over the next, I don't know, five to 10 years? What I would tell you is it's going to get faster, you know? So we're at 400, 800 today, it'll go faster, no doubt, right? So that whole thing will just get faster and we'll push it right out to the edge. We, we didn't We didn't get to talk about it so much, but when I referenced, you know, what we did back in the, the middle 90s, 40 gig, you know, we talked about one gig in your hand. So 40 gig was a whole bay's worth of stuff, right? So you're talking, you know, seven, eight feet high, 23 inches wide, you know, lots of stuff to do that. Middle to the end of next year, in you know, the middle 2021, we're going to be put 400 gig, the module that we can make for 400 gig is going to fit in the palm of your hand, right? So that's just a huge improvement if you think about it, right? So you know, that means that this technology can go in a lot more places. It can come much closer to the edge of the network than it's ever come before. You can even see a day where that kind of technology makes it into, you know, the Paul Shiny building or the shopping center, or, you know, the, the the local central office, all those things, right? So everything gets faster. The, the, the gaming guys sure want faster, but the other thing they want is they want closer latency. You know, from the time when I press a button to something happens, they want that to be as short as possible. And if you're really getting into this, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality thing, there's this thing they call motion photon, right? Which is when you move, things should move with you, right? You know, if you look down, if you're wearing a VR headset, AR headset, you look down, if you don't see your feet, first time you do it, man, it's weird. The hundredth time you do it, you start to feel ill, you know? So there's, there's real limitations on this latency effect. And what that translates into is, you got to really pay attention to the architecture of the metropolitan networks. And in fact, you're going to start pulling some of this cloud computational capability, which lives in these big, massive, hypergiant data centers. You're going to start pulling them closer and closer to you. Right now, that doesn't mean it's going to be right up the street, but it means that there's going to be some kind of computational resources 
just say between 100 and 150 kilometers away from you to start to meet these latency requirements that you're going to have if you want, you know, really good interactive things, right? So, you know, we did one on that. Um, there's another one, another trend. So you got the faster trend, you got the closer trend. The other trend that's out there is just playing smarter. You know, we, we touched on it a little bit earlier, Joel, when you, you talked about Zoom. You know, smarter is all about how you take this massively complex thing that's getting built, but you make it simple enough that people can really use it, right? And I'll, I'll give you the, the best example of what I think is, is occurred in the industry. If you go back historically, you probably remember the feature phone, right? You know, flip it up, open it up, whatever. And it came with a manual about this thick, right? And we would go page through that thing. And maybe in about 15 minutes, you and I could figure out how to put each other on speed dial, you know? <laughs> Today, you've got a smartphone. The thing is, you know, probably 10,000 times more complicated. You can hand it to a five-year-old and they're going to figure this thing out, right? A, a two-year-old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. You can give it to them and they'll figure it out. Right. And the, the whole reason that happened is because, you know, the folks who created that technology were so good at the software, the human interface. Right. They, they used the software and the intelligence to mitigate all that complexity. And, you know, the, the premise that we've got, I, cer I certainly hold this to be true, is you got to do the same thing with the network. Now, the network should be just as easy to use. You know, it shouldn't require all the complexity that's even there today because it's going to get bigger. It's going to get faster. It's going to get closer. So it's inherently going to be more complicated, but we better be applying, you know, software intelligence to it to make it simple enough that everybody can use it for what they want. So when, when I talk about what's going on in the network, I try to break it down into, you know, faster for sure. Everything's coming closer, but boy, it's going to get smarter also. So those are the big three buckets that we typically been talking about. That device you mentioned that it was like 400, uh, 400 gig, gig, yeah, 400 gig fit in your hand. Can you explain to me, like dumb it down a lot for me. <laughs> so what, what is that device? And you said that if it were like closer, it would help me. Can you explain that more? Well, so it's it's the device that if you think back to this electrical to optical, optical electrical conversion we keep talking about, that's the device that does that. Right? Got it. And it does it in that kind of capacity of 400 gig. You, you go back 25 years ago, 40 gig took 16 different modules that were about the size of a good good size book, you know, an old encyclopedia book, right? It would be a reasonable size for those things. And on that, you would have gotten two and a half gigabits, maybe 10 gigabits, right? 400 gig in the palm of your hand, right? And the reasons for that, it's it's the things that allow us to have, you know, smartphones and everything else. It's the continued progression of silicon, right? We can now do, you know, seven nanometer silicon. You know, that's the feature size on the actual silicon die. You're going to have five nanometer coming next. We can build a lot of our photonic components that used to be, you know, lovingly crafted out of little lenses and, and such into silicon as well, into silicon waveguides. We can make taps, we can make photo detectors, we can make modulators, we can make lots of things in silicon. And so you're, we're benefiting from the continued development and evolution of silicon process. So a lot of this evolution we're talking about is taking place at the point of conversion. An awful lot. Well, so that point of conversion from electrical to optical is so critical because you've got to get, you really, when you're building out a good infrastructure, you want a lot of capacity, a lot of connectivity. You want to pay a lot of attention to that photonic layer. Right? You want that to be really, really robust because that's what's really creating all the capacity everything else is going to consume. 
So you pay a lot of attention to that. And you'd like to get optical as soon as you can, so you can take advantage of that kind of capacity. So why don't I why don't I have optical into my office? Why isn't my modem optical? Like why isn't well, up, it... until, up until now it's been cost cost complexity, right? And it'll give you an interesting interesting story. So one of the things that one of my summer projects. So we live here in Annapolis, but we have a, another house over on the eastern shore of Maryland, and it's four owners share. It's basically a, a working farm, so it's nice to be able to. You go from you know what I currently do on the day is knowledge work. You get over there and you're doing physical work, right? You know, so you're going to go cut a field. <laughs> you're going to go plant. <laughs> you're going to do something completely different than knowledge work. But I've got a neighbor there. He's in the IT space because of all the COVID stuff. He took his family. They're sheltered, you know, they sheltered in place over there. Terrible connectivity, just awful. We're 15 kilofeet from the remote terminal. You're talking a couple of hundred kilobits of DSL. That's pretty much all you're going to get. There's some satellite alternatives. I mean, this, we're talking about the digital divide, you know, right here, you know, right across the bay here. We got together with them by just a fortuitous, the local electric company had to replace some underground lines got a hold of the contractor that was doing that work, said, hey, could you pull in conduit for us that we could then go and go to the local cable guys and get real internet service down this road? Because we're four houses about a mile off the, the main road there, and it's a gravel road, right? Long story short, pulled all this stuff in, got it all connected up. When the cable guys came out there, what did they install from the pole down to the houses was fiber. Now, they have to put what are called media adapters at either end of it to do this optical electrical conversion back into something that speaks coax that can talk to a conventional cable modem. But all of a sudden now our, you know, our little neighborhood over there is ready for the next step, which is going to be ultimately a fiber to the home kind of environment. Right? So why did they put fiber in? Well, you don't have to have amplifiers. It's actually easier for them once they get the fiber in because they don't have to have remote power and all the other things that go with it. So it is coming. It's just slow because anything that takes time out in the infrastructure. If you're digging trenches, if you're hanging cable, if you're climbing poles, I mean, that's that's people and hours and equipment and time, and it just doesn't happen overnight. So it is getting better. You know, an awful lot of the cell towers now are fiber. You have fiber right to the cell tower. If you're in an environment where you can get um, things like a Fios or, you know, gigabit cable, any of the high-speed connections, you know, those all are based on having fiber closer and closer to the, the end user. Okay, so I have FiOS, right? So at the yeah. office here. So when it's in that big fiber optic box, that's when it's converting to an optical signal. So you'll see a cable come in the bottom, which is the fiber. And what's feeding into that is going to be probably Cat 5 or 6, depending upon when the, the cabling was put in. Okay, so then help me understand with this FiOS concept. If it's optical from, my, from like the time it exits my building, does it stay optical like when you when it, let's say it's going through one of your data centers is it does yours recognize the incoming optical and then just pass it along like throughput no in general because the, the just because of the details of how fios works where it's basically what's called a passive optical network and the, the exact technology that's used there what it'll do is be optical to the first central office they'll convert it back into electrical Look at all the addressing, you know, look at the format of what you're doing, making sure where does it need to go, drop it back down into the, you know, they'll, they'll do what effectively is the routing function or the aggregation function. They'll combine you with your neighbors and all that stuff, put it, put it into, you know, basically a format that 
the internet can then recognize, drop it back into the internet, which will then route the individual packets to wherever they need to go, right? Because, you know, what you're doing right now, what we're doing, sure has to go to a certain location called Zoom, but you're also probably, I'm going to guess, you probably have email open, you may have a couple of apps open, you know, there's other things that are going on on your desktop right now, they're going to all other places than just Zoom, right? So you can't really have an optical connection dedicated to you and me. What you do is you build that optical connection, aggregate all that traffic onto it, carry it very efficiently to the central office, let the central office process it all and send it to where it needs to go. Some of it's going to go to Zoom, some of it might be going to Microsoft, some of it to Facebook, some of it to Apple, and it just, it spreads it out to where it needs to go on the internet. Interesting. So it hits the central office and then it gets sent out to where it needs to go. I got it. Okay. I'm just, I'm, I'm learning a lot in this, this cool. conversation. You're, you're very good at explaining. So, see, that's the benefits of like, you know, getting to meet with all these experts is the experts can explain it in the most simple way. That that's yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. One of the things I have a standing joke with my boss, Gary Smith, our, our CEO, but what does the CTO do here? Right. What's the T for? And I tell them it's absolutely technology, but it's also talking, traveling, troublemaking, troubleshooting, and the occasional tantrum. <laughs> so it's just a matter of, you know, what do you need at that time? Now, my travels, you know, used to be, and I, look, I like to get out and talk to customers. I, I tell them that's really how I get my compass set, right? If you're a boater at all, you know, getting the compass set right, forget the GPS, can you navigate just with the compass, right? Now, today, my travels are all virtual, but I can still get around and, and do all that. But the other ones are just as important. The talking one, you know, a lot of times the job of a CTO is translation, right? You, you've got to take these, you know, Joel, if I walk in and say, look, you know, we're going to use H.265 over QoS enabled IP over 16 QAM DWDM at 100 gigabyte on SMF. You know, you're like, wow, okay, that sounds cool. But what does that mean if I tell you, dude, we're going to put a, a video in front of you that is going to make you feel like you're, you know, center stage at the theater, you, you get a much better impression, right? So it's it's making that translation of this is the experience you're going to have with the fact that I'm doing it with these 25 acronyms strung together. Well, okay, that's a detail, right? So, but that communication function, that translation function, you know, taking what is kind of a complex esoteric technology, but turning it into, you know, so what's it mean to me is, is actually part of the job from time to time. At what point in your career did you realize that you had like an affinity for that, that you were good at that? You're realizing you were good at it and, and actually just doing it, I guess probably you're different. I was probably doing it really early because, you know, I had friends in the high school that were, weren't as much nerds as I was. I mean, I was into the details of how the shortwave radio worked, how the ham radio worked, you know, how you, how you optimize the impedance match to get the highest transmit power, all this sort of thing. But I would say, hey, you want to come over and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll grab Paul and we'll, we'll go talk to some guy in Sweden. Yeah, cool. How do you do that? Well, we got this ham radio thing, you know, or would you, would you like to listen to Radio Moscow? You know, just something different. So, so you know, I, I had a, an eclectic group of friends that weren't all nerds and really into it, but I could talk to them in terms of, well, here's what I do. And I know how to do all this stuff, but would you like to listen to, you know, something you've never heard before? Right. And so I guess I started with that. And then, um, when I was at MIT, MIT is a wonderful environment because it is so diverse. And, you know, you're meeting people that are into just all sorts of other things. And, you know, you just get into conversation. Well, what do you do? What are you working on? And you got to be able to express it in, 
in multiple languages. And I don't mean, you know, French, English, Jap Japanese. I mean, talk to a biologist, talk to a, you know, person who's, who's working on astrophysics, talk to somebody who's a, into the media lab and you're into the, the physics of propagation on fiber. You know, it's like, how do, how do you make those conversations work? But you learn. And, uh, you know, I think that was honestly one of the reasons I ended up in a, a CTO position at, at Siena is when, when WDM went in its early days, it was all acronyms. There, there were, you know, you, it wasn't some people were used to. There wasn't even places you could get the stuff built. There weren't even manufacturers for it. We had to kind of invent all that stuff. But we had to convert it into value our customers could understand. And I still remember, I think, that the first time that the, um, the sales folks needed somebody to come in and say, you know, Alexander, can, can you go explain this stuff? I was like, yeah, I can do that. And I did it with a couple of graphs and a lot of talking. And they were like, okay, you're going on all of our visits from now on, right? Because the guy understood what you were saying and we were not able to do that before. So you, you come with us now, right? So that worked out well. But I do think that kind of translation function of, you know, this very detailed, you know, technical language that we speak you know, what does it really mean is, is a, part of the, a part of the job. That translation function, I think, is critical. So how, how are you preparing like, your team or the next generation, maybe the, the skip level? Like, how, how do you prepare the leaders that are near you for, for this next like, wave? Well, so, so you have to, it's coaching, right? It's coaching. It's leading by example. Um, you know, it's interesting about, I mean, leadership is an interesting topic i mean it's written about a lot it's talked about a lot you know it's it's one of these things that's kind of inherently social because leadership means you're influencing people to do something and they don't necessarily do it because you're their boss right you know that's different that's more authoritarian stuff right if you really want to lead you have to be able to explain it in a way you know what does this mean to me why should we do this why is this important hey that sounds cool i understand you're excited why should i care but you got to be able to have those, those kind of conversations with folks. And it's some, to some extent, for some people, it comes naturally. For others, it takes a while to learn it. And honestly, some never get it. Right? They, just, they, they, they may not care that much about it. They're much more into the, I want to know the details. I want to know every gory detail about this thing. And somebody else will translate it into value for them. Right? So and it's finding the people who want to make that translation function work well, I think, is is part of the, the search, if you will, for, you know, the, the next, the follow on talent. And then what's, what's the uh, hardest lesson that you've learned as a leader? Oh boy. Let's see. I mean, it's, you learn all sorts of them. I mean, I've, I've done this job for, you know, a number of years now. So I guess it would vary depending upon the size of the organization and then where you are. I mean, one of the, the hardest ones I learned early on was, and you learn more, to, I guess, through failure, if you will, right? We failed on a couple of early customer engagements because we just were wildly overextended. And I don't think I appreciated how wildly overextended because I didn't pay enough attention to detail, right? Which, which is a known problem with me. I, I my skill set is around synthesis, distillation, you know, it's, it's that side of the, I uh, guess they call it the, the yellow side of the brain, if you will, if you follow that kind of blue, green, red, yellow model, and right? I tend to be on the yellow side, where green and blue is more the, you know, have a good project manager, make sure all the Excel spreadsheet, you know, all the cells are filled out with numbers that mean something, you know, that, that sort of thing. So I always did best 
I think when I had a really good like VP of engineering, project manager, I, I would not make a good VP of engineering, you know, for that reason. It's just a, it's a kind of separation of what you, what you got to do. I mean, early on, when, a, um, when you're a very small company, everybody run, you know, does multiple jobs. The hardest one for me was the detail around making sure everything was done correctly on the engineering side. So I would, you know, naturally gravitate to get help from people who were really good at that. And I had a couple of folks who kind of explained it to me to see it's really simple. We use critical path method here, CPM. Just stay off the critical path, you'll be fine. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I can do that. So you know, I figured out what that meant, and we worked to you know to, to move in that direction. But I was always good at uh, taking the okay, you guys have got it figured out, and let's go change it, and we're going to go communicate it this way. Right? That was always a a, a skill set that I seemed to uh, do well with. Nice. I like how as you talk about yourself, you have a great amount of self awareness, which is really exciting. Yeah, knowing what you, I heard this quote once that I really liked, and it's like, find out who you are and do it on purpose, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's true. It's true. No, if if you put me into a VP of engineering role with what with what, and you absolutely have to have folks who do it. You just do. But you know, I'll give you a, a real simple way of the the spectrum of engineering in this space, right? And it's called hanging a picture, right? You'll find two kinds of engineers that hang a picture. There's ones who will They'll get out and they'll measure the wall and you'll figure out, is it square and is it flat? And everything, right? You'll have all the dimensions and you'll all the rest of it. And there's others that will go, you want it here, hon? Bang. <laughs> and I'm much more on the, you want it here, hon? Now I can do the other, right? We've, I mean, if you have to sometimes, you know, we have these mirrors that we're going to go up in a, in a bathroom and the tolerances were tiny. And, you know, I got out the tape and measured. I mean, I can do it. But that just doesn't come nat- as natural to me as, do you want it? Doesn't that look good? You know, that sort of thing, right? So you have to, that, that's an interesting way to find your, you know, where you are in the engineering spectrum. I think I connect with you a lot in that regard because uh, I've been uh, exploring a lot. Like I'm a very self-reflective, always trying to improve uh, type of individual. And so figuring out what I'm best at and then how to double down on that is always interesting because I can get excited and I can do the engineering stuff, right? I, I can do it. But then I was trying to find, because I can do multiple things, right? I was trying to find like, which one can I do best and how do I narrow that down? And wouldn't you know, just asking that question and allowing for a lot of time to pass. <laughs> <laughs> gives you a pretty yeah. good answer, uh, like I'm yeah. finding to be true for most things in life. But for me, a couple... Yep. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. I mean, it's good to know you can do it. I mean, I feel good. I can do it. Right. But would I want to do it continuously? Absolutely not. Right. I, so what that translates into to me is I value it. Right. I, I, I value the people who can do it like that. And I don't think any less of them that they're, they're not like me. I don't want that. Right. I want diversity. I want people who think differently. You know, there's this old saying about, you know, if everybody's thinking the same, no one's thinking. 
right? And that's, that's very important on teams, especially when you're back in the, the ideation phase where you're putting things together, where you're solving the initial problem. You want a people from all different you know, perspectives to look at this thing and throw ideas up there. And some are going to be better than others, absolutely. And, you know, but you got to have that diversity of thought up front. Otherwise, I, I almost guarantee, and I've seen this multiple times, if everybody's agreeing, you're kind of like, okay, have you really thought through this thing, you know? And, and so getting diversity in up front and talking it out and, you know, having everybody have their say has been a, uh, certainly, I've solved more problems, really hard problems that way than any other way. Do you have any other CTOs or CIOs off the top of your head that would be good for me to talk to that I'd get some people that are, that are similar, similar to you or interesting? I would, I would actually suggest you talk to our, our CIO, Craig Williams, because Sienna found itself in a very good spot when everybody had to go remote. Right. And he'd come into the company a couple of years earlier. And um, what he did was, you know, his, his objectives was to create an environment for mobility. And he wanted to put in place, you know, the kind of cloud-based infrastructure, all, all the things that you would want for a mobile workforce, assuming that we would still have the very centralized workforces that we did. So it was kind of a hybrid model. But he did such a good job. He and, he and his team did such a good job that we find ourselves in pretty good steads right now for you know this kind of work from home environment. Right. So I think he might would be an interesting chat about what he put in place, what he saw, why he did what he did, and how it ended up. Because we're we're in a reasonably good spot in terms of being able to facilitate the remote workforce and such. I mean, right from Gary on down. We get, you know, Gary kind of set the, the agenda around, and these aren't his words, but I would, I would phrase it on, you know, take care of the people, they're going to take care of the company. And Craig had made sure that they had the tools to do it. I, I would encourage you to have a conversation with, um, with Craig. Great. No, I love referrals and suggestions to people because that, that seems to drive the world. Well, thank you so much for coming on and hanging out. Oh, yeah. Hey. No, Joel, this has been fun. Uh, I, I can see why you like doing this stuff. Plus, meeting all those people, meeting all the variety of folks, right? Talk about diversity. You must, you must really enjoy this. It's a good thing. You know, it's one of those things, right? Do what you like, or do what you like, or do what you love. The money will follow. One of those words out there. So that's good. Cool stuff. Yeah, and it's not a straight line. <laughs> that is for certain. No, I understand that. You, you can't be in telecom and optical and not understand what ups and downs mean. <laughs> <laughs> Take care of yourself. Stay safe. Thank you, Steve. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.